Hello, friends and adventurers. It's Rob, the D&D wannabe, coming in before the show to share some great news. New news! Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. Imagine, if you will, that you are listening to a Dungeons & Dragons podcast on your favorite listening device. Then imagine that the host of that podcast intro reminds you to consider Louisran Jones. As we left him, he was a halfling, a big game hunter, and a mayor of a small jungle village. Mr. Jones recently became aware that his reality is not as he once understood it that he and everyone that he has ever known were fictional characters in a tabletop role-playing game, and that every instance that has occurred in his life was dictated by the whims of people outside his own reality. This realization caused Jones to go off the proverbial reservation, and he began to act unpredictably and against the rules and logic of the world he lives in. Now he is a rogue element, not subject to the rules and regulations and continuity of the universe around him. Louis now spends his days in an abandoned... Hold on a minute. Excuse me, young man. If I might have a word. Who are you? What are you doing here? Ah, yes. Hello, it's me, Louis Jones. Mayor of Jonesboro? Famous and celebrated adventurer. I've just hopped off the old reservation and uh, thought I might share a few words with your listeners, if that's all right. Can't you see that I'm in the middle of recording an introduction for the podcast? Yes, yes. Bloody marvelous. Now, slide to the side there, son. Now is not a good time. You see, you're not actually in the script for this introduction. It's more of a solo thing that I do by myself, talking in a manner in which you are here. Scoot over a little bit there, son. I'd I'd love to take part in your solo exercise here with you. No, that 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 is my chair. I may be small, son, but uh, I don't. A man needs his elbow. How are you so strong when you're so uh, tiny? Now, now you lot out there on the other side of the fourth wall. Now you listen here, because I have a couple of grievances that have come up since I've made this astounding discovery. First off, let's start with the character creation process. There's this thing that I've heard about called min-maxing, and quite honestly, it, it sounds delightful. Making capable adventurers who are optimized in order to ensure peak performance in their areas of expertise. Yes, all well and good, except when my player created me, I was made with a 7 in my strength stat. Yes, that, did I say that right, stat? They call it ability scores in 5th Yes, edition. ability scores. What the bloody hell am I supposed to do with a 7? It makes it very difficult for me to carry my adventuring gear. And speaking thank, of... Thank you very much, Louisrin Jones. What's this whole business about you wasting my hard-earned gold on things like fancy hats and frilly outfits? That gold is best spent on adventuring gear. Forget all this other nonsense. We should be buying better armor, 10-foot poles, chalk, extra oil for your torches, and other necessities for this line of work. Why, it's like you players have never adventured a day in your lives! Alright, can you in the booth please cut the mic and stop recording? Obviously, we have a situation going on here. I now listen here, you cotton-headed ninny-muggins. Don't you dare listen to this man. These are the th some things that those players out there on the other side of the wall need to hear. If you so much as look sideways at that slider, I will come out there and give you a piece of my mind. And by my mind, I mean my cane. I'm not going anywhere until I've covered the most egregious of our offenses. And that is this nonsense about tragic backstories. Why, my player alone has had three characters be the only surviving member of a massacre, and not one but two characters have killed their own families whilst under the control of someone else. 
Waverly Day, I thank the DM that my player didn't give me one of those traumatic origins. When you're out there just pencil-whipping these things to try to come up with something that's going to be tragic and compelling, have a heart. Think of what you're doing to the characters. I know that we may not be as real to you as we are to ourselves, but we deserve some decency, dammit. We deserve some respect, and we deserve some quality of life. All right, Steve. I know that he might be acting a little differently, but you are still in control of this player character. I need you to walk him out of this room so I can get on with my job. Steve? Steve? Is that the bloody shod who came up with me? You will remember him as the inebriated restaurateur. While I may have much to thank him for, I'll be damned if I'm going to take orders from some intoxicated, out-of-shape, sodding pencil pusher. Seems to me I should have a word with this man myself. All right, I bid you adieu. Tally-ho! And welcome back, friends and adventurers, to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration. Rob and Steve, back at it again, talking about metagaming. One of the few ways, besides just lying about your roles, that you can cheat in Dungeons and Dragons. Hi, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate you coming back for this second half of our discussion of metagaming. Like Rob said, there aren't very many ways to cheat in Dungeons and Dragons. One of which would be lying about your dice and or your math. Another would be lying about the abilities that your character possesses. Those are ways that you legitimately disobey the rules of the game. But metagaming is its own brand of cheating because you're not really disobeying the rules of the game. You're just outright betraying the fiction of the story that we're all trying to make together. And you're ruining the experience either for yourself or for the other players around the table. Yeah, it, it kind of boils down to insincerity, doesn't it? When you metagame in a negative way, in a way that hinders the game, you aren't treating the character or the situation the way that it would have actually happened. Is it weird that we're trying to maintain some sort of semblance of realism and verisimilitude in a game that's all about the magical, the fantastic, and the fictional? You know, I, I mean, I don't really think so, because part of the way that we can interact with this magical, wonderful world is grounding it in some sense of reality. That gives us something to latch onto, something to relate to, so that we have something in common with the characters that we're trying to portray. And when we throw that away, well, it kind of stops being a tabletop role-playing game to me. But you know what? Maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Someone might have found this episode without going back and listening to the one before it. So in case someone finds themselves in that situation, Steve, what is metagaming, and is it always bad? As we stated in the last episode, metagaming is any action taken by the player of the game that betrays the verisimilitude of the fiction. It's often going to occur when the player uses the privileged knowledge that they have by way of having a seat around the table to act upon information that their character would not have. So basically, when a fictional character acts in a way that is inconsistent with that fictional character, and as you said, usually because they're being piloted by someone with a wealth of information that that character lacks. And on the surface, that sounds bad. And trust me, normally it is. And we're going to be talking about that the majority of this episode. However, there are instances where treating a game like a game is in the best interest of the fun of everyone around the table. And that was kind of the topic of last episode. If you're curious what examples of metagaming could benefit your D&D game, maybe go back and listen to that episode first. Yeah, a lot of what we talked about in our last episode was that metagaming can actually be beneficial. And while we may have stretched what some people would consider metagaming, I think we stuck pretty well to the definitions that we gave at the time and came up with the controversial opinion that you should actually metagame 
a lot at your table in very specific ways. But most people have an understandably negative response when it comes to metagaming, and that's because they've probably encountered some of the things that we're going to be talking about in this episode. And normally, the line that you cross to make it from positive to negative metagaming is who the metagaming benefits. If it benefits your fellow party members or the dungeon master or the story as a whole, it's probably good metagaming. If you personally, as a player or your character, stand to gain something, and so you use out-of-game knowledge in-game to give yourself an advantage, that's typically the bad type. Yeah, most of the different ways that we discussed good metagaming was to benefit the experience of your fellow players. Things like making sure to pick up downed characters first, or trying to keep the party together so that no one had to sit idly by while the other half of the table played a game. But pretty much all of the expressions of negative metagaming are going to come back around to you actively seeking your own advancement in a way that you should not be able to within the fiction of the world. So, let's jump right into it. Or as Rob would say, all right, let's begin. Okay, so there's lots of ways to metagame. But I think the first one that jumps to my mind may be the one that jumps to other people's mind. And that is, it's funny that you mentioned experience, because experienced players are more likely to be guilty of this kind of metagaming than newcomers to the hobby. And that is using information that you have gleaned from previous games, or your own experience reading through the books and associated materials for Dungeons & Dragons, to have a scoop on the enemies that you are facing. Look, guys, we get it. This isn't your first rodeo. You've been there. You've done that. You've done the homework. You've read the manual. You have these monsters HP and AC and saves memorized. You know what they're resistant to, and you know how to exploit their weakness. You understand the gimmick, and you know how to circumvent it. You understand that that flame skull is going to keep reviving itself until it's sprinkled with holy water because you've fought them before. You understand that trolls are constantly going to be able to keep getting back up thanks to their regeneration ability unless you burn them, unless you literally kill it with fire. And you've watched enough monster movies to know that silvered weapons are important when you're facing some lycanthropes. But how much of this information does your character have? This might be your character's first time coming up against that flame skull. And how many movies has your character watched with lycanthropes in them? You know, to to a certain extent, I sympathize with this one because I am the guy who has read all of the books for fun. And I have somewhere in my brain a little bit of information on almost every monster in D&D. I couldn't tell you everything about any of them. But I can remember some highlights, and when I, as a player, encounter one of these creatures, I have a little bit of a game plan of how it could optimally be taken out. I know what its weak saving throw is. I know that it's probably immune to fire, thanks to its infernal heritage. I know that if it's a shape-changer, that polymorph's probably gonna not do much to it, and the like. So, I kind of get it. You don't want to make the same mistake twice. You really struggled with that lycanthrope the last time your party fought it, and you'd hate to have that kind of a problem again, and you've earned your stripes that now you don't have to deal with that again. But like Steve said, your character is probably a novice at this kind of thing. They haven't had the experiences adventuring that you have sitting at the table with your friends. And to use that knowledge to increase your odds of being victorious in this fight is the bad kind of metagaming. Mercifully, this is a pretty easy one to avoid. You should just start each game suppressing your player knowledge and assuming that your character probably doesn't know all of this stuff about these monsters that you as a player have so much experience with. This is where your DM comes in. An easy way to adjudicate this might be to reach out to your DM and say, Steve the player has run a flame skull before. 
So there may be some things that I would know about them that my character would not. What would my character know about flame skulls? If I was a DM when presented with that, I would look at two pieces of information. One, do you have proficiency in a relevant skill? A relevant intelligence skill, what's more. And if that character is proficient in that relevant skill, as a DM, I would give them a certain amount of information for free. Gratis. This is what your studies have afforded you. If they would like to know more than that, say, the precise way to manipulate the gimmick or... Uh, whether or not it has certain weaknesses or resistances, you know, maybe they would need to make a role in that skill, and we could go from there. Conversely, if there's some sort of narrative reason that they might have experience with this particular sort of entity, I would take that into consideration as well. If your whole family was killed by werewolves, even if you don't have a relevant proficiency or make a good role, I would probably say, as a DM, that you had spent a little time understanding how to fend off werewolves in the future. You know, that is one of the things that I really appreciate when my players come to me and ask, because it shows that they are as concerned as I am about preventing metagaming, but that they are excited to face whatever creature this is because they know something about it. So I love to give them the opportunity to bring that out-of-game knowledge into the game. And a high role can justify that. A good backstory can justify it. Having them be a character who deals with this sort of thing on the regular can justify it. I've run for some professional monster hunters who have made it their life to study the lore and ways to put down creatures that most people only have nightmares about. And that has made things very interesting. And as you say, uh, I think you asked <laughs> how many monster movies has your player character watched in the past? <laughs> I mean, movies probably not, but think of how many things you know about fighting vampires and werewolves in a world where they don't exist, just because we find it interesting and entertaining. How much more would someone from the world be educated in this just in case they ever happen to come across one. It's not altogether unlikely that for entertainment or for protection, you heard some folk tales, old wives' tales, superstitious precautions of things to do to protect yourself against the unknown. Right. And you know, maybe that's what I would do as a DM if someone rolled low, is I would still give them information. It just might not be entirely accurate. You might get the old wives' tale version, or... You might get the explanation of vampires that involves them sparkling. Or you might get the one that says they have to count grains of rice whenever they're spilled in front of you. Ah, 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 ah. Something like that. I can just, I would love a D&D &D encounter where Strahd is approaching the party and just someone hucks their dinner at him in hopes that he will count the grains in the rice pilaf. <laughs> oh, I wonder if, if I ever run Ravenloft, would I make him the count from sesame street because that would just be that would just ruin the whole thing <laughs> in one fell swoop four four dead adventurers ah 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 you know but that is the fun thing about intelligence skills right that your character can have knowledge that the player does not possess but it is different and detrimental to impose player knowledge that a character would not have it's, it's a one-way street as far as it being acceptable. And the trick is that the information that you as a player do not have, that your character would, is coming from the DM. Which means that it is sanctioned, it is acceptable, and it is a reward for building your character the way that you did, or from rolling as well as you did. Because, you know, let's face it, a lot of D&D &D is based on chance. That's kind of the way it operates. So that's, when you say metagaming, this is kind of what I assume you're doing. I think most people would agree with you. Is bringing knowledge about the game, like not even the particular game you're playing, but about Dungeons and Dragons into your game. What, what other examples spring to your mind? 
You know what I think is worse than using your knowledge of the monsters that you've gained from previous games or from outside the game to give you some sort of edge in combat or in roleplay? It's when you take the knowledge that you have of the other characters in the game by virtue of sitting next to their player during roleplay and use that against them in the game. One of the things that I enjoy most about playing this game is surprising and delighting the other people around the table and being surprised and delighted by them in return. I enjoy when people have pl- I enjoy when the DM has plot twists and I enjoy when the other players bring some sort of unexpected backstory element or some unexpected connection to one of the other players or to the overarching campaign. I've even played in some games where the party wasn't actually all on the same team. And I did not see a problem with that. I kind of enjoyed finding out that one of the people who I was adventuring with was actually working for some bad guys. Maybe not the bad guys, but some bad guys. And I've enjoyed being that person before as well. But these secrets can be difficult to keep from the other players in certain circumstances. If you're going to play the game and you're sitting around the same table... Unless your DM is willing to drag everyone off to the other room to have these little private conversations, there's probably going to be some dirty laundry, so to speak, that gets aired in front of the other players. And when you do, there's an expectation that they're not going to inform their characters, so to speak, of this stuff you have going on on the side. You see, and I think that's probably more difficult playing in my games, because secrets to me aren't fun unless people know you have them. So I routinely try and isolate a character or give them a moment or give them a message that only they know the true significance of in front of the other players because that is my way of getting my fellow players interested in that particular character and their story is giving them little teasers and if no one at the table is metagaming it's a great way to draw people in and increase the mystique and the drama surrounding the party but if somebody shoots the lid off of that particular jar then yeah it it kind of destroys the point of having the secret in the first place If you get a letter from someone who is a member of your secret family and you hide it in your pocket and then, say, later on when the party is camping, someone fishes in your pocket for some seemingly innocuous reason but goes straight for the thing and asks the DM with a knowing look, what do I find in his pocket? Mm. I mean, is is that fun? Is that that Mm. being respectful of the character and the story? No, not so much. It's a very thinly veiled attempt for you to make this discovery. I feel like maybe they should happen a little bit more organically or not at all. And the thing is, if you don't know that there is something there to find, then there's probably not going to be an organic way for it to come up. So it's kind of the risk, I guess, that you run. It's kind of a balance to walk between letting people know there's a secret and then trusting them not to act upon it. Now, I feel like This might be a little bit of a tangent, but just for curiosity's sake, we may want to elaborate on this point that you made that secrets are only fun if other people know that you have them. I think I know why you're saying that, but maybe let's dig into that a bit. I assume that you are saying that because a secret that other people don't know you have might as well just be white noise in your backstory. Is that what it's coming out to? So if I have a secret in my backstory, let's say, that I have a child out of wedlock and it's a scandal in my family because I come from a family that is somewhat high-born and if mama and papa were to find out, I would be disowned and my inheritance would be forfeit and the child would be a pariah and, you know, whatever you want it to be. If that never comes up in the game, then what good was it to have that secret? It needs to come up in the game. But it's likely that either the player or the dungeon master has a plan for when that would be a dramatic reveal. 
or is planning to do something with it to make it more interesting than it already is. The players coming in to find it out and rub it in your face before it's time, before it's ready, just feels like a gotcha moment. Just to kind of have a, I know something you don't know, kind of you know, kind of behavior. And it's it seems, I mean, and very much in that kind of way, it seems childish to me. So when you have a player who has inserted a, a little a little juicy secret somewhere into their backstory or character design that they don't want the rest of the party to know, your strategy then is to tease that and start dropping hints as time goes on. Is that right? I would work with the character to make it important to the story. And everybody is participating in the story. The party probably is not spending a great deal of time apart. And like with secrets in real life, if you want to keep it a secret, you have to work to do so. Because circumstances of life would have almost any tidbit of information that isn't carefully covered naturally come to light. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's somewhat linked to the next version of metagaming that I have on my list here, which is inserting your character into a scene into which they're not present for, or the slightly more common version, altering your character's actions based on something that happened in a scene that they were not present for, based on circumstances that they would be otherwise unaware of. Such as the such as acting upon these secrets that they shouldn't fully understand. Sure, I, I think we had a very hyperbolic example when we were talking about this. That the party is divided during a dungeon crawl, and in one room, somebody finds a magic lamp, and out pops a gin, and starts handing out wishes. And somebody four rooms away who has no business knowing what's going on in the room with the lamp says, I gotta get me some wishes. Hey, Dave, uh, what do you think Greg and Steve are up to right now? We should hurry back over there, sprinting as fast as we can and see what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Like, <they're laughs> th th that player's character is probably in the middle of something else. Maybe they've already played out what they're doing for the next five minutes before the lamp was ever discovered. And there's just no reason in the fiction of the game that those characters should be running four rooms away in the dungeon to get themselves some free wishes. It's just out of player greed, right? Right. And this is sort of the thing that you were talking about earlier when, let's say that our party bard has something tucked away in their pocket. Either that or they're just happy to see you. <laughs> Fine, it can't be bards then. We can't mention bards on this show ever again. Uh, let's say it's the rogue, and you as a player strongly are curious about what it has got in its pocketses. So you decide to go over there and have a look. That, to me, is a more egregious and more problematic version of metagaming than bringing fire to a troll fight. I mean, this can also manifest in terms of who gets the magic item, who gets the MacGuffin, who's keeping what where. You find particularly problematic players going to rob other characters in their sleep of their stuff. And this is an unrelated problem to metagaming, but metagaming can make it perhaps easier if someone tries to defend themselves in character from such behavior and hides it in a special place. Well, you can metagame your way into knowing where that place is pretty easily. You know, I think it's funny that you say that because I know that the cast of Critical Role has a storied history of stealing things from each other in their sleep. Some of them, like, say, Not the Brave in Campaign 2, set that precedent very early on, and therefore it never really seemed out of character for them to do that. But in Campaign 3, it's a couple of characters fighting over trinkets and things, just constantly making a game of trying to swipe it from the other person. And in Campaign 2, uh, when Not tried to steal Ford's letter of acceptance or letter of recommendation into the Academy, that was something that she knew for a fact that Ford had and went specifically looking for it. So there was actually no metagaming taking place there. So... In that sense, I thought that was actually pretty 
good, kosher, and even fun. In in those cases, it was clearly done for comic effect, and no feelings were really hurt, and it was not anything particularly significant that was being swapped around. I know also Jester stole Knot's flask for a while out of a desire to help Knot curve her drinking problem. And there are ways in which that is character development. Be careful. Stealing from party members can be just its own stinking problem. But certainly more so if you are using knowledge that your character does not have to make it happen. So finally, we come to my last version of metagaming on this list, and I'm sure there are more, and if you have some, please bring them up on our Discord. I love nothing more than a good discussion, but the last one that really grinds my gears is when you tell another player what to do on their turn. We actually kind of talked about this in our positive metagaming episode last session. The line that we draw that distinguishes it between a positive player behavior and negative metagaming is when you cease being instructive and start directing, and when that help is welcomed, or when you're just trying to drive. Take, for instance, our last recorded session of D&D that we played on the Misty Mountain streaming Twitch channel. We encountered a monster that forced the entire party to make a wisdom saving throw. Rob reminded our party paladin that they had an aura that would give anyone who was standing nearby a bonus to that roll, which ended up being very helpful and allowing some of the members of the party to make the saving throw that they otherwise would have failed. But he did not tell them what to do on their turn. He simply reminded them of a passive ability that was already on their sheet. Uh, By the same token, we had a spell cast in our Wild Beyond the Witchlight campaign that was cast at a higher level, and that should have done a little bit more damage, and we we found that out uh, over the course of that turn, as we were about to roll too little damage. And I didn't say that they should or should not use that particular spell, I just wanted them to use it to its full effect and get the most out of what they already had decided to do. So, yeah, there's a helpful way to remind people of things that you know are on their sheet. But it's never fun to play the game for someone. Just because this is your third ranger doesn't mean that you're going to play their character better than them. Sure, you may have a preferred or optimal way to behave in a certain situation, but those were your rangers, and this is their ranger. Uh, And it also kind of goes back to the reason that my wife won't play Pandemic with me anymore, because by the end of the game... She feels like I'm basically playing the game by myself, just Jaegering her pieces around the board. And she has told me in no uncertain terms, that's not fun. And don't worry, guys, I'm getting better. (laughs) And you wonder why I don't want to play Dead of Winter with you. I'm getting better, Rob. I'm I'm not saying that I don't do it, by the way. Uh, I'm guilty of it, too, at times. Um... Probably more so for D&D than in board games at times. But it, it just kind of applies to the golden rule of life and Dungeons and Dragons. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If you wouldn't enjoy somebody leaning over your shoulder and driving your character around, the person sitting next to you probably doesn't want you to do the same thing to them either. You know, I just realized that this is a microcosm of why I don't like DMPCs. Hmm... Because it's another person stepping in to solve the problems that my character should be solving. Stealing the glory! Uh, You know, it's not a direct parallel, but some of the same reasons I don't like DMPCs are the same reasons I don't like another player controlling mine. Fortunately, that one's really easy to shut down uh, by literally anyone around the table. Uh, It's just something to be cognizant of. So we may not spend very long on this, given the way that we feel about it, but let's briefly get into this. If metagaming is happening at your D&D table, and it is damaging someone's fun, how should it be handled? You know, we just talked about, in two of our different versions, easy ways to handle them at the table. And 
It's very appropriate for you to do if you're the dungeon master, but it can be done if you're a player as well. When we were discussing a player inserting themselves into a scene for which they are not present, it's very easy for anyone around the table to just remind them that they're not there, right? You're not, you're not there. <laughs> yes. It's the other people's turn to talk, guys. There is no reason for you to double back and go meet the genie if you don't know a genie exists. And as I just said, if you notice that someone else is trying to pilot, shall we say, another player's character, remind them that they have a character and it's not the one whose turn it is right now. That's kind of my default approach to conflict resolution in D&D as a whole, metagaming or otherwise, is call attention to the problem, make the problematic person aware that their behavior is problematic so that they have the opportunity to change. It's weird to say, but a lot of people don't know they're pissing you off when they're pissing you off. And all you have to do to get them to stop that behavior is bring it to their attention. Not always, but more often than you'd think. Let's start by assuming the best about your players. Hopefully you are playing D&D with peers, people relatively your own age and relatively your own maturity, who can act like adults and do the thing that is going to make life easier for all concerned. Now, it may be that that conversation takes a little while, that you have to convince them that the behavior is damaging the game in some way, that you would enjoy the game more and you believe that they would also enjoy the game more if they played it sincerely. That may take that conversation may take a while, but I believe it's worth having if you're hoping to save that player and preserve the party and to help one another grow as members of the D&D community. And this is the approach that you should always take first. You need to assume the best about your fellow players and work under the assumption that they do not know that this behavior is problematic. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They're innocent until proven guilty. And when you do bring this up to them, if they do seem to show remorse and express a desire to change their behavior, be patient with them, especially if they're new players. Get you know They may slip up again, and they may need to be reminded. It might not be a overnight change, but you do want to look for for genuine remorse, genuine commitment to the table's enjoyment of the game, and a willingness and desire to change. If your players around the table are not willing to put in effort to have a good time themselves and to help others have a good time, it, it may be time to find new players. But I really like the way that you handled this in our notes. When you approach someone about a problematic behavior like metagaming, asking questions is a great way to not just come down on them and make them feel like they're being attacked from a position of authority. You wrote down, why? Why do they feel it is necessary to do this thing? Do you realize how it is impacting the game and the experience of the other players? And would you be willing to try doing it a different way? All of those show a concern for the person you are speaking to as well as for the group as a whole. Right. To your point, they may not realize what they're doing is problematic. They might have a legitimate reason for behaving the way they do and just not realize that the way they're going about it is breaking the game, is damaging the experience of for the other players and the verisimilitude of your world. There also may be a niche instance where what looks like metagaming really isn't. I remember early on in my career having to sit one of my players down and ask them about some stuff that they were doing that seemed very out of character to me. And it just turns out that they did a lot of thinking about their character that I, as the dungeon master of that game, was not privy to. They developed their backstory a little more, made some decisions about themselves, which were perfectly fine decisions for me, just ones that I didn't know. And that really opened my eyes and justified that particular behavior. And to your point from earlier, if negotiations break down and you find someone who gets 
excessively defensive or argumentative or is frankly unconcerned with the experience of the other players and how their actions may be affecting them, then how to put this, they may not be right for your table. Yeah, I, I kind of believe that D&D is for everybody. And part of that is that there is a table out there for everyone. It just might not be mine. You know, the games that we participate in and the games that we run are very story-centric and have a lot of role-play, and this particular kind of metagaming would be quite problematic. It would certainly ruin the experience for us as the Dungeon Masters because it will break down the story that we're trying to achieve or the, the moments that we're trying to create. I feel that that would be the case for us as players as well, but there might be a game out there where it's roleplay light, just straight dungeon crawls. That might be a great place for this player to scratch this itch. You know, and maybe this is why I think metagaming is such a problem, and this may be the case for you, you'll have to tell me, is because I find that the dungeon master's job, if they are being a good dungeon master by the metrics that I judge them, typically is the management of information and mystery. What you do know, what you don't know, what you think you know, and then confirming or disproving what you hold to be true about the world you live in is where the story happens for me. So, if you have, I still like the way you phrased that at the beginning of the episode, if you have privileged information that you are allowing to invade my story... It, it does damage my enjoyment of my own game. Yeah, I tend to agree. Uh, I haven't run a homebrew campaign, but uh, based on the notes that I have for whenever that happens, it's going to be very much in the same vein. Discussing these matters is a great way to handle, as Rob put it, the mishandling of information, where a character is using this privileged information in order to meddle in the game in some way. But... There was that other kind of metagaming, the one that we mentioned first, where you have very experienced or very well-read players who are using their knowledge of enemies from previous games or from the books that they've read and the manuals that they've gone through to circumvent some challenges. And as we said, you know, that's that's kind of relatable. When I can't play a D&D game, sometimes I'll just read the books, and that gives me information that I will have never gained as a player, and that certainly my next character may not start the game with. And say I was eventually, Rob, at some point to run a game for you. You know that monster manual more or less inside and out, and I know that you are a good enough DM and a good enough player to not metagame. You're going to suppress your player knowledge in order to not interfere with the experience of others. But if you had your druthers, you'd probably be taking out these monsters in the optimal way. So one of the things that is in your toolbox as a dungeon master in order to challenge these very experienced players is to change some stat blocks. Mutate the monsters, not just on paper, but in the fiction of the game. Have variations of creatures that would otherwise be familiar. Perhaps it's a dire version, or a two-headed version, or a version that's been twisted and changed slightly by its exposure to a different plane of existence. Let your players know up front that the creatures that they might fight in this world might be atypical or unfamiliar, perhaps even to players that have proficiencies in those skills. Maybe this is the first time this creature has been encountered within the fiction of your game. One of the characters in my homebrew setting is a stitcher who puts different pieces of different monsters together. Everyone suppress your Shao Tucker references. But combining aspects of two different creatures into one might be a great way to mix things up for that player who knows the book inside and out. And making those changes actually upholds my ideal when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, which is continuing to surprise and delight your players and presenting them with things that they didn't expect. If in advance you have decided that 
This hydra is a Blackreach hydra, and its resistances are different by virtue of its diet or its environment. That may be an instance where I could see changing things from what the characters are expecting in a way that builds the world rather than just makes your players wrong. So, we've covered what metagaming is, how it can be improperly used to really negatively impact the experience of everyone around the table, some ways to handle it once it becomes problematic, and some ways to prevent it from happening within the fiction of your game, which only leaves one additional point that I wanted to make with regards to metagaming around the table, and that's how it could be advantageous to you as a dungeon master. And I know that Rob has uh, probably a different opinion on this, and I admit that the ways that it can be useful are fairly niche, but uh, I don't know. If, I, if, we're, if I'm ever going to bring him up, this is probably the episode to do it in. So I think that metagaming can benefit the Dungeon Master, and I think we discussed pretty much the bulk of the ways that I truly believe that can happen in the last episode. In fact, I would very strongly caution against the Dungeon Master trying to weaponize the metagaming of the players against them, making their out-of-game knowledge that they are bringing into the game false on the turn of the dime. If you change a monster's immunities, resistances, just because someone had a clever idea or because someone handled it the right way, then you start to walk down a path of breaking the trust that your players place in you. If you are changing things on the fly, then you're not running a sincere game in the same way that they're not running a sincere character. You could argue that it's the Dungeon Master's purview to do that sort of thing, or that you're doing it out of an interest of them and giving them the experience you wanted them to have, but it seems it, it smacks of selfishness to me. It smacks of gotcha, which is not the spirit that I approach dungeon mastering with. Right. Yeah, and I think that goes really well with the point that I was trying to make. The point is not to have this gotcha moment. It is not to combat the metagamer using the game. Make the changes in advance. Explain to them that the things that they're going to encounter might be atypical and unfamiliar, and you are doing these things in order to surprise and delight them with the unexpected. You are giving that player who knows the monster manual forwards and backwards the opportunity to encounter something new again for the first time in gosh knows how many games. I will admit that this sort of gotcha mentality, as you put it, was very popular online when I went to the message boards looking for other opinions and advice from, you know, dungeon masters outside of our friend group. That's why I don't go to the message boards. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think it is valid to say that there are people outside of our group who might have some good advice. And I often kind of use them as a sounding board for some of these ideas before I take them onto the podcast. And I get what I think are some really good ideas, and I get what I think are some really bad ideas. And because this is my podcast, you know, I get to present them as such, but to each their own. So some of the things that they recommended doing is this adversarial approach to dealing with your metagamer, as opposed to hashing things out with them discussing the behavior and why it's a problem and how it is affecting people and how it can be fixed. They would say strictly change the stats on the fly, like in the middle of combat, change them to where you are subverting the efforts of the metagamer, which to your point means that now suddenly everyone else in the combat is having a harder fight because of the metagamer. You don't want to prevent someone from thinking creatively or using the information they've been presented with. I get that those people are trying to keep someone from cheesing their way through a combat encounter based on knowledge they have outside the game. But by doing so, you're, you're really mixing things up for the rest of the players, too. There's, there's something to be said that we're all in this together. If one suffers, then the lot should or could suffer 
and this is a team game and you are able to face the challenges that you face because you are doing so as a group. That said, when when someone is acting alone or when someone is taking steps such as these to ensure victory for the team, it it's still smacks of selfishness to me. I don't know. I can't I can't personally get behind it. And I think that we'd both agree that that's not our preferred way to deal with metagamers. The DM to player relationship does not need to be any more adversarial than it already has the potential to be. The asymmetry is enough, guys. We don't need to add actual antagonizing one another. But I did think that there are actually some ways that the natural metagaming that comes from playing can be used to the DM's benefit. And granted, this is a very niche scenario, but if you are playing, say, some sort of horror game where you want the characters to have a bit of trepidation, you know, a little bit of fear above the unknown, you can actually instill that to a degree within your players using various table elements. Things like uh, asking for perception checks, when there may not be a actual narrative reason for you to be doing so. It'll give the players the impression that maybe there's something out there just beyond their notice. In so doing, you can mirror the fear, nervousness, and trepidation that you want their character to have at the time. Really, I don't think that this is something that is particularly useful in any situation other than a a thriller or a horror-esque session, but there were a lot of people online who said that they had done this with good results, so uh, I thought it bore mentioning. Now, I admit that while I found a lot of people who feel positively about this philosophy, there are also a lot of people who feel very, very negatively about it and who see it as deceitful or as some sort of lazy DMing, but I think that there are legitimate reasons that you might want to do it. Again, fairly niche. But there is also the philosophy that I found where if you just bust out your dice and you roll, the players will expect that something has changed, something has happened, even if you haven't said anything or given them or their characters any indication that something has changed in their room, in their scene, in their scenario. So some DMs would recommend that you do this in any sort of game every so often, just so those who are looking for it don't have alarms going off in their heads every time you reach for a die. In a strange, backward sort of way, they're actually using it as a metagaming prevention measure, which I've never tried, but find intriguing. Maybe I'm just the weirdo that rolls dice for a reason. (laughs) I, I don't know. I'm this is this is this is kind of going a little above my head. I'm I'm sure there are people that do this to great effect out there in the world. But when I pick up a die, I want there to be a reason why I pick it up. And I want to know before I roll what may or may not happen depending on the result that I get. And I made a YouTube video <laughs> specifically to espouse my beliefs on when you should and when you should not roll dice in D&D. And... Uh, these examples did not make the list. <laughs> well, I don't think it's weird of you to only pick up the die when, say, the rule books that tell you how to play the game say you should reach for a die. Like I said, these are just some fringe cases that I have encountered out there and that uh, made either particularly compelling or particularly concerning points that uh, I wanted to indicate, and I would be very interested in getting our community's feedback on. Well, by now I... <laughs> Hope they know the easiest <laughs> ways to do that. We have a Twitter, B Twinspiration. If you aren't intimidated by a character count, come and tweet at us. Steve pretty much champions the Twitter account for the two of us. We also have a community Discord that is getting steadily bigger, bit by bit, where fans of this show and us, I guess, do we count as fans of the show? I, I listen to it a lot. I listen to it probably more than most people. I listen, I listen to it today. I listen to it during the editing process. And I'll still probably listen to it when it comes out on Spotify and on YouTube. Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of myself. 
But yeah, we hang out in the Discord. Steve's in there every day. I'm in there pretty much every day. Hanging out and talking about Steve's been doing a lot of world building in there recently. Yeah, I love to world build and often lack inspiration. So I have a channel that is completely dedicated to that in the Discord. And I am happy to help you find your inspiration if you would like to come in and look for it as well. Your twin inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> But in all seriousness, I am very interested in how metagaming is handled in other circles because as much D&D as I've played, it's probably been with the same two to three dozen people, I would say, by this point. So I would be very interested in hearing how it goes at your table in your part of the world with your friends. Maybe try some of the things that we've talked about in this episode. How did that conversation go with the consistent metagamer when you sat him down and really tried to explain how things went? Did things end positively? Did they not? Who have you had to ask to leave your table for metagaming? Are there any more good ways to metagame that we missed? What's the worst metagaming that you've ever experienced? I would love to talk about it. And the best way, I think, is our community Discord. But you can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Guys, I have an Instagram now. <laughs> and I'm on that thing constantly. I don't know why I waited until this year to get one. But come give me a follow. I'll drop you one back. And then you can sit around and enjoy the steady stream of D&D-themed memes that I put out every day. You know, Steve may keep his face off of his Instagram most of the time, but where his face can be found is on Twitch and on our YouTube channel that he mentioned earlier for Misty Mountain Gaming, or Misty Mountain Streaming for the Twitch, of course. We stream Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Over on our Twitch, most of it is Dungeons & Dragons or Dungeons & Dragons related, Steve has been on it a good few times. I'm practically always on there. And the sessions of D&D that Steve and I have played together, whether or not I've been the Dungeon Master, sometimes we actually get to play together, are over on the YouTube channel for you to go back and enjoy. Links to all of these things in the description of the episode. Guys, it's been a while since we dropped an episode. We really appreciate your patience during the con season when Rob has been out of pocket almost constantly, and I've been working through the scheduling nightmare that is Little League T-Ball. It feels good to be back in the chair with the mics turned on and be providing you with these conversations and getting to hear your thoughts on these episodes. Despite the fact that I've been on Discord every day, it's it's just not the same as trying to actually give something back to the community. So we really appreciate your patience while we sorted all those things out, and we are excited to be back in the saddle. Yeah, just to, to give you a little peek behind the curtain into both of our worlds, I've been putting a lot of effort into getting the Twitch channel up and running. We're making the push for partner right now with them. So I've been trying to stream three times a week, as we just said. We went from one once a week to twice a week to now three times. And I'm trying to organize more people coming on to those while still going to the conventions, still keeping up with my normal work. And it's just made me less available in the evenings when Steve and I would normally be available to record. And Steve has been being super dad and as his kids are getting to be the ages where they can be involved in other programs in the community with other children their age, he's had, uh, he's, he's had maybe a little less energy and spare time in the evenings as maybe we would like. But this is still probably my favorite part of my job is getting to sit down and talk through D&D with my brother and with all of you guys. So we're committed to getting back into this. We just had to get our lives figured out for a while. Sorry. But that doesn't mean we've been sitting idly by either. There's lots more content out there, and there's lots more content coming. We have a rolling list of topics that we intend to continue to discuss in this next episode of Bardic to Inspiration. We'll catch you then. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic to inspiration and on Twitter at 
B Twinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. From some intoxicated, out of shape, shodding pencil pusher. I, mean, I, I can't. I've lost the accent. From some intoxicated, out of weight. <laughs> <laughs> this is hard to say in this accent. So, in case that, or as I was about to say, in case that's the case. <laughs> as we stated in the last episode, started speaking squirrel. Let's jump right into it, or as Rob would say, all right, let's begin. <laughs> it's just not the same without the clap. I did the clap. <laughs> I missed the clap. <laughs> it, I guess Discord clipped it. <laughs> do you have proficiency in a relevant skill? A relevant intelligence skill, what's more. Would we necessarily make that distinction? I mean, you know, there could be a nature role applicable. Nature is an intelligence role. Is it really? Oh, okay. I, you can tell I never take that. No, not so much. It's a very thinly veiled attempt for you to uh, make this discovery. I, I feel like they should happen a little bit more ergonomically. and that's uh, Organically? That, I guess, is the risk. I don't think ergonomically is the word. Maybe not. I'm not sure I perfectly understand the question, but I will try and answer it nonetheless. I don't even like my own example there. Um. <laughs> you are super happy to be back in the set. Super happy, yeah. And we have a rolling list of topics that we intend to continue to discuss on our next episode of Bardic to Inspiration. Can you take it from intend to continue to discuss? Because I think intend got garbled. <laughs>